Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I have a kind of unwieldy title, Set Free from the Constraints of the World, We Gain the World and Ourselves. And what I'm thinking of here is Jesus warns in one of his parables that one would gain the world, one who would gain the world will lose uh, the world and himself too. I believe Paul, and this is what we're reading from, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is giving us the alternative strategy in which salvation is receiving back of the world through a recognition of who we are in Christ. That is that salvation as Paul applies it in 1 Corinthians 7 in particular pertains to how we do marriage, how we regard sex, how we negotiate our social situation or how we negotiate our identity. And clearly Paul's message is not that you have now you know, accepted Jesus into your heart and you're going to heaven when you die and everything else is secondary. Rather, he says, you have been bought with a price. He says this both in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And what you have been bought out of is a world where sexual gratification, social station, ethnicity or family these may be thought to be primary. These may be thought to be the point of human existence. You're saved out of that. You were bought with a price, he says in verse 23. Do not become bondservants of men. You've been bought out of a world in which marriage is determinative of who you are. You have been bought out of a world in which gender, social status, ethnic status constrain you and determine your identity. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Salvation means one is saved from what constrains everyone else. Sex, ethnicity, gender, even human slavery does not dictate who you are. In Christ. The slave, Paul says, is the freedman in Christ. One is enabled to live, as he says in summary and from verse 29, as if not, as if this were not the case. So we might describe Paul's picture of salvation as a practical salvation, in that one practices this salvation in every area of life. It's the practice of love. We enter into a new ethical reality because identity is not on the basis of the story or the narrative that the world tells. God has called, he's formed a people to serve him. You know, this is the ongoing story of Israel through the church such that we can live as if not, as if the world's values, standards, identity do not prevail or, or define or determine. So our first task as Christians is not to make the world better. 
Our first task is to be Christian, right? Our first task is to help Christian people form a community consistent with Christian convictions and consistent with the narrative, with the story of who Christ is. And so in the midst of this discussion, and this is what I'm building up to in verse 13 of chapter 7, Paul pictures holiness not as something the individual achieves in isolation, but this holiness infects the world. So we do have an impact on the world, but it is spreading out then from the body of believers and from the individual believers. So let's read from verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would become unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So the notion that the believing partner sanctifies, and what we need, we need to run what this means, but the idea that the believing partner sanctifies the unbeliever is revolutionary. And of course it's the same revolution which Jesus began when he had table fellowship with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes. The power of holiness is so encompassing that it can draw the unholy into its field of force and transform it. So the infectiousness of holiness, of sanctification, is more powerful than that of unholiness. But again, what are we talking about here? And so let me run down. What is holiness? Remember our earlier definition of holiness is unity. And the dis the, the, the unholiness, the definition is disunity. So, you know, the idolatry is the thing that characterizes that God is calling the Jews out. I believe that idolatry is disunity. Disunity with the self, with God, the world. And the thing which characterizes who God is, is unity. God is one. This is the, you know, the Shema that the Jews repeat. For their sakes, Jesus says, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. This is his high priestly prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And listen to what happens when they're sanctified. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Holiness is the finding of unity. Unity is defined in the oneness, the unity of God. So that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The mission of Christ is accomplished in the unity of his disciples. And so it's something that's visible, it's something perceptible. So what is it? It's not merely a formal or mechanical unity. 
uh, ecclesia, you know, ecclesiastical machinery sort of thing. Rather, people centered in Christ are not caught up in the divisiveness, in violence, the unholiness, which may surround them even in marriage. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them. The idea here is that we can even carry out this unity and it can carry over into our family life even where one of the partners may not be a believing partner. Paul says in chapter 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God. Glorify God in your body. And this is inclusive of your marriage relationship. And so this perfection, this unity, centered in the body of Christ, has a unifying force and it draws the world into its orbit in a very practical way, starting in the nuclear family. And so the hope of 716 is that the lure of holiness will manifest through the members of the community of faith such that their unbelieving spouses will be drawn to the truth of the love of God. And this logic of holiness, I believe we can just extend it out to many situations. It suggests that our vocation as Christians is to draw the world into this unified holiness. They shall know you by your love. You know, you love and holiness go together. Holiness is a summation of peace. It's a summation of the love of God. So think here, you know, of the Jewish temple and the Holy of Holies. It was a cosmic representation. It had cosmic importance for infecting the world with holiness. But Paul says, you are now that holy place. You are the holy of holies. You're the temple. You're the tabernacle. And this holiness through you is spreading into the world. You know, James tells us that the word contains the truth. The holy people are a unified people. He pictures this as in no way divided, not divided or tossed about, not even dependent on the cooperation of your husband or wife. See, this is, this is a, a new way of doing identity. Maybe to state the principle differently, and Paul does this in the chapter, those who are in Christ have a family of more enduring and inter eternal significance than our blood relation, than our marital relation. And this was the principle, you know, that Christ, remember when Jesus' mother and brothers are coming to see him, and he says, well, wait a minute, who are my brothers? Who, are, who is my true mother? Those who follow me. We are not dependent, Paul is saying, upon our human family for our identity. And Paul explains this means that the single life, that the unmarried, that this also has dignity and value before God. You know, may, in Protestant churches, maybe in reaction to Catholic imposition of a mandatory celibacy among the clergy, we, in the Protestantism, we've kind of overreacted that we regard the unmarried state as unhealthy. But Paul is saying just the opposite. 
Maybe this is even had uh, reinforced by the forces in our culture that insinuate the idea that human wholeness is really gained through sexual relationships. Paul argues that for many people it is better to remain unmarried. Not because sex is dirty or wrong, but because the single life allows Christians the freedom and flexibility to serve God. He says this in verse 32, one who is unmarried and concerned about the things of the Lord, he's concerned with how he may please the Lord. Now, the other, on the other hand, you know, the Roman Catholics uh, espouse the idea that what is the purpose of marriage? Well, they say you have uh, marital intercourse for procreation. I believe that's precisely wrong. Nothing could be further from Paul's view. He never, in this chapter, mentions procreation. He never mentions children. But he argues strongly that partners in marriage should satisfy one another's desires. This takes very seriously the reality, the power of the human sex drive, and the danger of sin and self-deception when that reality is denied. You know, that's obvious. I'm uh, obvious among Roman Catholics, the perversion there, but maybe it's not just there. Paul says in verse 27 to 28, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, and this is, pertains, they've apparently written him a letter. And they've asked specifically, about the virgins in the church. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Marriage and singleness are to be thought of as serving the church's mission of holiness, carrying the gospel to the world as a vocation, is to factor into our choice of marriage or singleness. At the very least, Paul poses an alternative to Western cultures, the frantic kind of idolatry, seeing sexual gratification as a primary end of human existence. Paul is posing singleness as a lifestyle which has its own gratification, and this may exceed the gratification of marriage and family verse 20, or 32 to 34. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He's not saying there's anything wrong with that. He's just saying that's the reality. And his interests are divided, necessarily. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. So there's widows, there's people who may be like Paul himself, whose wife has apparently died. She may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. That's not a problem, he's saying. It's just a necessity of marriage, how she may please her husband. And so Paul, for Paul, the single are not second-class citizens. Paul is saying, in fact, this is preferable for service. 
He's not denigrating marriage. He's just describing the reality that marriage, and we've talked about this, especially in the first century, marriage is a heavy obligation. It consumes, rightly so, perhaps, a large portion of one's attention and energy. If we value rightly, we can value one who is primarily concerned about the Lord and for that reason remains single. Now, all of this raises a question. I don't know if you've noticed because Paul acknowledges in this entire section, verse 25, he says, now this is just my opinion. I'm not giving you a command from the Lord. Verse 25, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. I give an opinion, one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. He says, I think it's a good opinion. Verse 40, in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the spirit of God. They've apparently written and said, well, you know, there's these spiritual people in the church. And they're saying, well, the really super spiritual will do this and that. And Paul says, now, wait a minute. This opinion, though, seems to be based on the idea that the second coming, the parousia, is about to occur. If Paul, I'm raising a question here. If Paul had known certainly that all the virgins whom he is advising would go to their graves without witnessing the coming of the Lord, would he have so strongly advised them to remain as they were? He says twice over, this is my opinion. This is simply my opinion. He makes it clear, I am not handing down a command. He's inviting us into his reasoning process. And what I'm suggesting is we may need to adjust our own moral reasoning accordingly. 2,000 years later, the end of the world, the second coming has not happened, right? Is an adjustment that we need to make in our own understanding, our own opinion, to see marriage as a calling or gift from God while still holding to the validity of singleness as a call. Now, we've made an adjustment clearly in regard to slavery, right? We understand that this form of social order contradicts the logic of the gospel. And this is almost there, you know, in, the, in chapter 7, Paul's admonition. Do not become the slaves of men. It's there in the book of Philemon. It's there. He never speaks openly against slavery, the institution, but in embryonic form, the implication is that we're, as Christians, not to participate. We have 2,000 more years in this story. And to ponder the implications of retelling this story of our own decisions about sex and marriage it's not to reject the authority of 1 Corinthians. I believe it is to remain faithful to Paul's vision for making moral judgments, quote, in view of the present necessity. That's what he says. Under the guidance of the Spirit. 
So Paul's picture of one world passing away, I've said it may be taken metaphorically as applying to every ordering of the world. Certainly God has intervened in the world and in our human ordering of the world through Christ in the church. The resurrection of Christ is a new way of construing the world. He is the beginning, Paul says, the firstborn from the dead. In time has come, it has begun, in that a new creation, this is in chapter 5, has come to pass. Yet the old epic lingers. We live between the times, participating in the new epic, in the kingdom of God, while we confront the old epic. From now on, let those who have wives, Paul says, live as if they had none. Here's his way of negotiating this between the times. Those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So the question, were the first Christians mistaken? Or are we mistaken? That one world is passing away or could abruptly perish? As if not. Live as if, you know, not. This delineates a strategy, I believe, for all of us dealing with a vanishing epic. The social structure of this world, of this epic, is passing away. And of course, every human relationship is haunted by the prospect of death. One should no longer stake one's life on marriage weddings, funerals, not asceticism, but a new ordering of life's priorities around the fact of the resurrection. Invest only what is due in a particular social structure. The principalities and powers of the, this world are no longer the way we are to order our lives. Jerusalem indeed fell, right? 70 AD. Hellenism perished. Rome was sacked. Antiquity expired. And the church survived. It survived the Middle Ages, which has now vanished. It has survived the modern, which is vanishing. This world is a set of fragile contingencies that may not last long. The present form of this world is passing away and discerning what endures and what is passing, I believe is part of the Christian strategy for living between the times as we do. Too tight a grip on the world means the world and eternity are both lost. Recognizing our enduring identity in the body of Christ, we can receive marriage, singleness, ethnic status, social status, 
we can receive these things as a particular gift. We are given these gifts though, all of them, for a larger purpose, the purpose of the kingdom. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.